Good afternoon. If you would be taking your Bibles and turning to the book of Amos, the book of Amos. We'll begin there in just a moment. Uh, several of you have commented, uh, hope that we had a good time at polishing the pulpit last week, and, and we did. Uh, let me just take that to moment to remind you again that our elders here, uh, we're very thankful, have supported us and uh, the, the congregation in uh, having the PTP 365 available for us here, where you can get on and watch the lessons uh, that were presented. You can't currently watch the ones that were just presented. It takes them a while to process those and get them uploaded, uh, but it does. You can certainly go back previous years, and then those will be available soon enough as they can get those up. And so while you may not be able to enjoy the full week there, uh, you can certainly take advantage of the lessons that were presented. I made mention of this before just to say that it's a bit uh, of a process and just that you have to kind of uh, log in with some information to get signed up, and then they will provide you your own login going forward with that. Uh, so it kind of takes a couple of steps, and if that's something you're not comfortable with or need help with, then uh, you can see uh, Heath or Brian or myself or several others, and we'd be glad to help you get set up with that. Um, but a lot of those are available where you can download them to, say, your phone or some kind of device uh, where you could listen to them on the go. You don't necessarily have to be sitting at home hooked up to Wi-Fi or Internet to watch those. Uh, you could download some and listen to them, or you can certainly while you're at home listen to them. So we're thankful for that. And just want to make mention of, of using that service because it's a very, very good thing. I also need to just say before the lesson this afternoon a couple of things. Uh, number one, I've always heard that a good preacher knows his audience. Uh, most of you have had way too many eggs and cheese at lunch and breakfast casserole. So uh, I'm aware of that. Uh, I know that. So uh, somebody said be really loud. Somebody else said be really short. So I'm just going to be loud and short, I guess. We'll try all that. And I do want you to know as well that just in case if I, if I really see some folks struggling... I'll come by and hit you with some syrup, okay? If you need a shot of syrup to get you going, uh, there's plenty left over, and I will, we'll send some ushers around, and we'll make sure and give you some sugar to help you through the next few minutes. So, uh, no, we uh, appreciate the good lunch. We appreciate our ladies and so many that fix for that uh, and the opportunity we have to fellowship with one another. I don't remember who it was I was talking to now in the kitchen. Uh, maybe Tom, I don't remember who it was, but I'm pretty sure we filled up further down the fellowship hall than we have just about in a long time for lunch. Had a, enough to almost take up all the tables that we had set out, and that's just a, a really encouraging thing, so uh, thankful for that. We have been looking now for, I guess, two months already at the Minor Prophets. We've talked about Hosea, and we've talked about Joel. Uh, let me remind you that they are called the Minor Prophets because of their length. In fact, they're not lesser, and they're not lesser in importance. They're not minor in importance. I heard a preacher friend of mine who said that he likes to call them the shorter prophets, and that's because they're simply minor because of their length. You may also be familiar that the Jews called them the Book of the Twelve. I think that's a pretty good name as well. Of course, nobody, <coughs> excuse me, nobody's being mean or any kind of way by saying the minor prophets. That's just kind of the minor and the major. But the book of the 12 or the shorter prophets kind of reminds us that they are very important, although they're short in length. The prophets have different things that they emphasize, but there are some common themes. We've touched on these, I think, so far the last couple of months. But they emphasize, the prophets point out God's majesty, how majestic and wonderful he is. They also point out God's holiness how he is a holy God that we should serve. They also point out his righteousness. God is right, and, and he is above all things. When the world is going down in flames, as we say, which we sometimes feel that way in 2022, but even at this time, the Jews could look around, or some could, and say, it seems that who knows what's right and wrong. 
but God is right. God is righteous. And also the prophets emphasize God's justice. They point out that God is a just God. I'll be honest, I did not get to go back and listen to all of Charles' sermons from last week, both of them. But looking at the titles and what I was able to hear, I think he, I know he would do a great job in emphasizing the idea uh, that God knows what's best, that God's going to do the right thing. And that is uncomfortable for a lot of people because they know they're on the wrong side of God, just so to speak, so to say it that way. But we don't have to be in fear of that. God's justice is a wonderful and beautiful thing when we think about the fact that we can be right with God and he is just. Let me begin by giving you a brief outline if you'd like to do that. There are three main sections if you're making notes. Three main sections and if you want to go ahead and write it out, they all begin with the word oracles. Oracles. There's a basic outline of three main sections. The first is oracles against the other nations or surrounding nations. Oracles against other nations. We're going to come back to this in a few moments, but this is chapters 1 and 2. Chapters 1 and 2 deal with oracles against other nations or the surrounding nations. If you've already turned to Amos, you will see some names in chapter 1 and verse 3 and chapter 1 and verse 6. And again, we're going to come back, but there are other nations that are mentioned and there are oracles against them. Number two, the second section is oracles against Israel. Oracles against Israel. And this is chapters 3 through 6. Oracles against Israel, chapters 3 through 6. Now, we've mentioned this before, but there are, there are lots of ways you could break this down. I saw one person who broke it down by verse, not just by chapters. But for the sake of time, for the sake of your thoughts, we're not trying to make it too difficult. Oracles, number one, against the surrounding nations or other nations, chapters 1 and 2. Oracles against Israel, chapters 3 through 6. And then oracles, lastly, of judgment and hope. Oracles of judgment and hope. And that's chapters 7 through 9. Oracles of judgment and hope, chapters 7 through 9. Now, if you begin in chapter 7, you'll see that the oracles of judgment actually include five different visions. We've talked about premillennialism and revelation a little bit on Wednesday night lately. Some people get into that and they get caught up in this idea of a dragon or this idea of candles and all these things that take place, a pit and, and elders and all the numbers. But it's interesting, when you go back to the Old Testament, we sometimes see these visions that deal with other things. Notice in chapter 7, verses 1 through 3, there's the devouring locust is one of the visions. Verses 4 through 6, there's a vision of flaming fire. All of these dealing with judgment. There's also in verses uh, 7 through 17 the vision of the plumb line. Some of you are familiar with the plumb line and how it works in construction or in building or in sort of checking things. The vision of the plumb line. Then there's also beginning in chapter 8 a vision of the summer fruit or a basket of ripe fruit. And then chapter 9, and we will come back to this as well in a little more detail, there is God's judgment on Bethel's altar. God's judgment on Bethel's altar. And so there is oracles of judgment here and oracles of hope. Now the man is Amos. There's no trick there. Sometimes people will try to make things up or say, well, maybe it's not really Amos or these kinds of things and with other prophets as well. But the man is Amos. His name means burden or burden bearer. This is significant because there is a burden on Amos, and there is a burden on God. 
In fact, if you look over in chapter 2 in verse number 13, chapter 2 in verse number 13, God says, Behold, I am weighed down by you as a cart full of sheaves is weighed down. There is a significant burden on Amos, and there is even a burden on God. The burden on God is because the people are so set in their ways. You know, we say sometimes, it must be tough being a preacher, right? It must be tough being a preacher because most of the world doesn't listen. They, They just plug their ears. They don't pay any attention. I cannot imagine being a prophet in the Old Testament times to the divided kingdom because the burden was on God because the people were so set in their ways. But here's the interesting thing, right? Burden on Amos, that's what his name means. Burden on God. But what does that mean? It means, number three, there is also a burden on Israel because if if they don't repent, they're going to have issues. They're going to have issues, and they will have issues. That's what comes about as we read about those oracles of judgment. There's going to be a judgment on the house of Israel. So there's a burden here on all of these groups of people. And so his name meaning burden or burden bearer is significant. Secondly, we might notice about him that he was from Tekoa. T-E-K-O-A, Tekoa. Chapter 1 and verse number 1. Now it's interesting because Tekoa was a wild and rugged area. And some people have said uh, that Amos was just an old country boy. Now, by that, we kind of it's kind of a play on words. We call country boys, right, today, people who are from the south. Well, he was just an old country boy, an old southern boy, who was sent up north to the northern kingdom. He's one of only a couple that we read about who went from the southern kingdom and prophesied to the northern kingdom. The other one that we read about is in 1 Kings 13, but we don't know his name. We have a record of a prophet whose name we don't know that went north. And so he's the only one, Amos is, that we know his name that went from the south to the north, just a good old country boy who went up north to prophesy. That goes a little further, though. Not just the southern kind of idea, the south, as we think about today, and country, but he was also a herdsman, a shepherd, and he was a gatherer of sycamore fruit. He was a herdsman and a gatherer of sycamore fruit. Now, he, he was basically, we might say, an outdoorsman. That's kind of what we're getting at here. Now, he was not uneducated or ignorant, That's what some people might say, right? They may look at sometimes people and call them, oh, that's just an old country person, and and maybe they mean that derogatory. They're just just country. They don't know nothing. They're, They're not educated. They're ignorant, something like that. But he was not. If you read through the book of Amos, and usually I give you these, hopefully if you've been following along, you know where we are, but if you've not read through it before today, that's certainly all right. Maybe you can. Uh, through the week, but if you read through the book of Amos, his use of words is, is very, he seems to be very knowledgeable. He has a good use of language and words, and so, uh, you know, he's not uneducated or ignorant, but here's what we mean when we say he was an outdoorsman. He knows what it is to work hard and to live in the wild, so to speak. Sort of this rugged, wild area, and he's kind of that person as well. In fact, As a herdsman, this is not to mean that he had like a a whole lot of sheep and he was rich. As a gatherer of sycamore fruit, doesn't mean that he had like vineyards or all this fruit. Again, he's some kind of rich person overseeing all of these. No, he had to work hard. It's said of this particular sycamore fruit that it was similar to figs. Now, I'm not experienced in these kinds of things myself, but similar to figs. And you had to pierce them to ripen them fully. So what we're saying is there's a good chance he was involved with tedious work. 
It wasn't something that he could just go and do real easy. It was tedious work to gather this sycamore fruit. It's tedious work to herd these sheep and to have this, uh, to be a herdsman, a shepherd. And so he was used to these kinds of things. So here's what's interesting. He was sent, we might say, from the south in the rugged wild area to the north into the lap of luxury, even though he was a, a rugged man. At this time, the north was in, enjoying a period of prosperity. They were at one of their highs economically. So he goes from a rugged, wild country boy up to the north. Somebody said it's like a country boy going to New York City, you know, kind of being out of his element, not quite understanding what's going on. But he wasn't impressed necessarily by all that. If you have your Bible, turn over to chapter 7 and verses 10 through 15. You'll notice here that Amaziah is a priest of Bethel, not a priest of God, but a priest of the idolatrous ways of Bethel. He's a priest of Jeroboam, king of Israel, who says, Amos, to Jeroboam, Amos has conspired against you in the midst of the house of Israel. The land is not able to bear all his words. Then he goes down to verse 12 and says to Amos himself, Go, you seer, you prophet, flee to the land of Judah. There eat bread and there prophesy, but never again prophesy at Bethel, for it is the king's sanctuary and it is the royal's residence. Then in verse 14, Amos answered and said, I was no prophet, nor was I a son of a prophet, but I was a sheep breeder and a tender of sycamore fruit. Basically, Amos is saying, I have no training. I'm not from the fanciest schools. I don't have the most knowledge. I am just this man, outdoorsman, rugged, willing to work hard and understand those things. And now he's been sent to the lap of luxury to try to preach to them the message of God. A few key phrases. I didn't write down all the verses, but if you like to make notes, we sometimes do these. The key phrases. Number one, an interesting one that we still say today Thus saith the Lord. It's found in the book of Amos at least 13 times. Two more times, it's found something very similar. So almost 15 times total, the words, thus saith the Lord. They're found. Now, well, of course, what happens is we say that today and people try to knock us down and say, well, all you Church of Christers talk about is thus saith the Lord, thus saith the Lord. It was the message of Amos. It was really the message of the New Testament as well. It may not be used in the exact same way, but why would we not want to say, let's find a thus saith the Lord for all that we are doing. Secondly, a second key phrase might be, seek ye the Lord. Seek ye the Lord, or something similar. It's found five times, five times. Seek ye the Lord. Amos has a large task on his hands to try to, to help them, to help them repent, to come back to God. He's going to say, seek ye the Lord the Lord. All right, a key chapter. If you'd like to follow and turn over, chapter 9. The key chapter is chapter 9. We already mentioned that chapter 9 is full of the oracles of judgment, and it's the prophesying about the destruction of Israel. Chapter 9 prophesies the complete destruction of Israel. They are going to fall utterly. He's trying to give them the message. He's saying, watch out, repent, Repent, come back to God before you are destroyed utterly. But that's what's going to happen. It's a key chapter because not only does he prophesy that, but if you have your Bible, mine has a break at verse 11. Yours may or may not. Again, it's uninspired. But I have a new heading in verse 11. 
Because the back half, verses 11 through 15 of chapter 9, Amos ends as all the prophets do with hope. He ends as all the prophets do by giving a message of hope. Verse 11, on that day I will raise up the tabernacle of David which has fallen down and repair its damages. I will raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. Behold, the days are coming, verse 13. Verse 14, I will bring back the captives of my people Israel. Now again, go back to the beginning. If you opened up to it there, you can kind of see. We won't take the time to go through each verse, but 9-1, strike the doorposts, break, slay, flee. All these words are used to mention destruction, but all the prophets. Isn't it amazing? I mean, when you really study them, It's not just doom and destruction, that's there, but so is hope. Now, chapter 9, verses 11 through 15, this section on hope, this is not a prophecy about a physical nation. We've been discussing this on Wednesday nights with the idea of premillennialism, but some people will use this to talk about the nation, the physical nation of Israel, but this is a prophecy of the church, and we, we can see that again, and we'll come back to that in just a few moments. Conditions, conditions of this book. I've already mentioned it for just a second, but around 800 B.C. to 750 B.C., 800 to 750, this was the so-called golden age of the northern kingdom. They are prospering, prospering politically, prospering politically and also economically. Someone said it this way, they were brilliant without and corrupt within. Brilliant without and corrupt within. Isn't that an interesting concept? You remember Jesus discussed that as well, Matthew chapter 23 and verse 27. What did he say? Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites. Why were they hypocrites? On the outside, they were like whitewashed tombs, whitewashed sepulchers, beautiful tombs. But on the inside, they're simply full of dead man's bones. That's what they were like. Israel here was enjoying all this money, all this prosperity, All this political clout, if you will. They were brilliant without, but boy, were they corrupt within. Almost like, I mean, almost like us today in a sense. If you look on the surface, America seems like this great country and and everybody has all they want and there's just money for days and everything's so wonderful. But as people of God, we look and sometimes it feels like just under that surface, just teetering on the edge of all this moral corruption is right there. And that's exactly what they were going through. They were puffed up. They were prideful, whitewashed tombs, but corrupt within. How sad that is. So Amos is going to deal with materialism. He's going to deal with self-indulgence. He's going to deal with pride and cruel oppression. Now, let's talk about a few of the major problems of the book. And by problems, I mean lessons. Because here's the thing that's great about the prophets. Their problems, the people's problems, there are lessons. We can learn from them. So a few major problems from the book. Number one, they oppressed the poor. If you have your Bible, I'd like for you to look in chapter one with me because this is a beautiful, a beautiful picture. I guess I say beautiful, maybe that's not the right word. It's probably a little scary more so for them and kind of interesting for us to think about. They oppressed the poor is the first problem. So here's where we see it. Notice chapter one, verse two. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn, and the top of Carmel withers. Then beginning in verse number 3, here's this oracles of judgment on area nations. 
First of all, verse 3. Notice the pattern. God says, for three transgressions of, here's the first one, Damascus. For three transgressions of Damascus, and for four, I will not turn away its punishment. All right, now if you're cheating and you're looking ahead a little bit, you're going to notice this pattern. But in verse 3, it's Damascus. And here's where it's kind of ironic. It's kind of humorous. Can you put yourself in Israel's shoes? Amos says on behalf of God, for three transgressions or for four, I will not withhold judgment from Damascus. And here's what Israel says. They say, oh, bravo, God. That's right. Those people are a bunch of heathens. You need to punish them. They're awful. I mean, they're terrible. But go over then to verse number six. For three transgressions of Gaza and for four, I will not turn away its punishment. Here's what Israel says. Amen. That's exactly right, God. Those people are terrible. I can't believe they do those things. You need to punish them. Do not turn your punishment away from them. That's right. They're awful. Verse 9. For three transgressions of Tyre and for four, I will not turn away its punishment. Verse 11. For three transgressions of Edom and for four. And here's what the people are saying. Each time they're saying, Amen. Amen, God. They're terrible people. But here's what you can't picture in this. And, of course, we don't have the screen, so I couldn't put a, a picture on it. You've heard me reference before. Excuse me. You've heard me reference before. There's some videos on YouTube, and, and I've got a book in my office uh, about the Bible Project. It's a kind of a, um, a drawn-out, animated way to look at some of the books of the Bible. Wouldn't just wholesale recommend everything that they may be their thoughts on things. But sometimes it puts a good picture in your mind. And here's what they did for this one. If you draw a map of the area of Jerusalem and Israel, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, what it makes is basically a bullseye. If you draw a circle, the largest circle is going to touch Damascus. If you draw a circle, then inside, the next circle is going to touch Gaza. If you keep drawing another circle each time like a bullseye, then you hit Tyre and there, then you hit Edom. So they're amening God saying, yes, that's right, but each time God is getting a little closer and a little closer to home. Then verse 13, Ammon, for three transgressions of the people of Ammon, or for four. Chapter 2, verse 1, and actually Ammon were some distant relatives of the children of Israel. Chapter 2, verse 1, for three transgressions of Moab, and for four, I will not turn away its punishment. Then look at verse 4, for three transgressions of Judah, or for four. Well, what's Judah? Judah's their sister nation. Judah's the southern kingdom. You see, that bullseye has come in a little bit tighter each time until all of a sudden he's right on their doorstep. Maybe the amens are getting a little quieter now. Right? Started off, that's right, God, those heathens, all those people around, they're terrible. But that circle has tight, tightly come in a little bit more each time. And then we read chapter 2 and verse 6. For thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel... And for four. We come to chapter 2, verse 6, and he drops the bomb on them, as we say. Israel, for three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not turn away its punishment. Now, touched on it just there for just a moment, but they were cheating the poor. Look at the rest of 6 and verse 7. He's going to go into detail about how they were cheating the poor. They were showing partiality to the rich and sliding the poor. Does that sound familiar to anybody? You ever read James chapter 2? What's James talking about? 
giving honor to the poor, bringing them to the front, and sending the, the, the rich and sending the poor people to the back, right? Getting rid of them out of the service. Let's bring the rich people to the front and, and give them the place of honor. It's not a new problem, folks. It was for Israel, and it can be for us today. So their problem was they oppressed the poor. Notice, secondly, another problem was materialism or idolatry. I hope that you're looking here. Chapter 3, verse 15. They had multiple houses. I will destroy the winter house along with the summer house. The houses of ivory shall perish, and the great houses shall have an end, says the Lord. Now, I'm going to go ahead and confess. I didn't ask how many of y'all have multiple houses before I got to that point right there. But I hope that you understand there's absolutely nothing wrong with having multiple houses. What happens, though, is with their multiple houses, they were wrapped up in their stuff. They were wrapped up in their things. In chapter 6, verses 1 through 6, he speaks of them being sort of kicked back and lazy. They were very materialistic. And once again, Colossians chapter 3, verse 5 in the New Testament, Paul would write covetousness, which is idolatry. Materialism. It's not a new problem. Not a new problem at all. So that was one of the issues that they had. Those were a couple of the issues that they had there. They also listened to the false prophets and ignored the true ones. Chapter 5, verse 10. Chapter 5, verse 10. They hate the one who rebukes in the gate, and they abhor the one who speaks uprightly. Once again, sound like something you heard before? People who speak truth who are abhorred, people who stand for the truth and they're brought down and made fun of and torn apart, and people who are speaking whatever anybody wants to hear are the ones who are built up. One more time, we go to the New Testament, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 2 through 4. Preach the word, Paul tells Timothy. Preach the word. Why? Why should he preach the word? For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but will have itching ears and they will turn away from the truth to fables. Old Testament problem, New Testament problem, 21st century problem. Materialism, listening to false prophets, even oppressing the poor. All of these are things that are issues that they had, problems they had, that should be lessons for us. If I wanted to give you one key verse, I had a couple, but for the sake of time, uh, we'll, we'll hone in on just one here. But Amos chapter 9 and verse 11. Amos chapter 9 and verse 11. Here's the reason I wanted to mention this. is because, as I told you earlier, sometimes people will turn to verses 11 and really through the end of the chapter or the end of the book, and they'll say that this is a prophecy about national Israel. Again, we touched on this with premillennialism. They'll say this is about that national Israel will be restored. It matters whether Trump or, or Biden or anybody, that, that what are they going to feel about Israel? That's what really, really matters is that land and the people there in national Israel. This is not talking about national Israel being restored. And the reason we know that, you may already have a notation in your Bible. Mine does in the middle column, but if not, you might make a note. Acts chapter 15, verses 16 through 18. Acts 15, 16 through 18. Why is that important? Because James, the apostle James uses this and he quotes from Amos chapter 9 in Acts 15 in his speech to justify the preaching of the gospel to the Gentiles. Do you remember that this was going to be a problem? This was going to be a big thing. The Jews are going to have trouble understanding that the gospel is now open to all mankind, to the Jews and the Gentiles. People try to apply Amos 9 
to national Israel, and they miss. I mean, I don't think everybody's being evil when they do that, but they miss the grand application that God gives to this passage today, and that is that those who are not Israel, it's all right. Salvation is open. We sing it, don't we? There's a fountain free. Tis for you and me. All who may come can partake of that salvation. And that's what's mentioned here with the pointing towards the church. And that's what James says in Acts 15 when he references back to it. Now, I'll leave you with one thought. And it's kind of mentioned in chapter 3 and verse 2. Chapter 3 and verse 2. Hear this word, the, the chapter begins, that the Lord has spoken against you, O children of Israel, against the whole family which I brought up from the land of Egypt, saying, You only have I known of all the families of the earth, Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. You know, you may have heard the saying before, with great power comes great responsibility. Now, if you're like me, most of us know that because it was quoted by the great philosopher uh, Spider-Man's uncle in the Spider-Man movie in 2012. With great power comes great responsibility. Now, according to the Internet, which we know everything is true on there, it says that it goes all the way back to the first century. But you know what's interesting here? Amos is saying, God is saying, I chose you. They had a great calling. I chose you from all the families of the earth. I chose you. They had a great calling and a great responsibility. But what does the rest of the verse say? Therefore, I will punish you for your iniquities. They had a great calling, which meant a great responsibility, but that also equals great consequences. This lesson's not meant to scare you, per se, but it is certainly a reminder that as the people of God, we have had a great calling and we have on our shoulders great power, great responsibility to share that with the world. And yes, there are also great consequences, not only for those who have not obeyed the gospel of Christ, but we heard a really good lesson at PTP this year by Brother Eric Owens that was entitled The Saddest Scene Ever Seen, S-C-E-N-E, like, the, like a, a play, The Saddest Scene Ever Seen. His take on that was that it's those who on the day of judgment will have been found to have known the truth and turned away. There's a couple of proverbs, right, that Peter gives us, like a dog returning to its vomit, like a pig to the mire or the mud. I don't want to leave on a depressing note, so to speak. I don't want to make everybody sad or scared. But it's true as it is now as it was then. God has given us a great calling. He's laid on us great power and responsibility. We just simply have to be faithful to him. And in the Old Testament, and specifically the prophet Amos and others, we have many great lessons that we can learn. We're about to sing this song of invitation in just a moment here. It's always sometimes or sometimes maybe a weird transition between the lesson and that. But we're thankful for this opportunity that presents itself that we can sing a song of encouragement. Maybe it has nothing to do with Amos or the lesson we've talked about, materialism or idolatry or anything like that. But we don't want anyone to leave today with worry on their heart or mind, heavy burdens on their shoulders, knowing that they're not right with God. Maybe you're here and you need to become a Christian. We'll be singing to encourage you. Maybe you're here and you need to come back to him. We'd be singing to encourage you. The great blessing now is that we have the church. We have the family of people assembled here. We love you. We care for you. We want nothing than for everyone in this room to be in heaven together. But we have to make sure that we are each right individually with God. And if you need to become a Christian or come back to him, we'll be singing to encourage you as we stand together and as we sing.